0: You're listening to Arc Radio
1: Podcast. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. So our guest today is Ajmal Masroor, an imam, public speaker, broadcaster, fundraiser and activist for many decades. Masroor is as comfortable taking part in TV programmes about Muslims, providing comments on discussion shows as he is on news channels commenting on global issues. As if that was not enough, he is a relationship counsellor, along with his wife, in the popular Bayford Institute that they founded. However, he has faced many challenges, including receiving death threats from a global terrorist organisation. So thank you, Brother Masrur Jazakallah khair, and welcome to the show today.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's a great honour and a privilege to share my thoughts with you.
1: So, Ajmal Masrur, tell us about your first item.
0: The first item... I've chosen on this journey, is a verse of the Quran, which is a very profound verse for me. It appears in Surah Kahf, the Surah of the Cave, Surah number 18, verse number 109. The verse reads as follows. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم قُلْ لَوْ كَانَ الْبَحْرُ مدادا لكلمات ربي لِكَلِمَاتِ رَبِّي الْبَحْرُ قَبْلَ تَنْفَذَ كَلِمَاتُ رَبِّي وَلَوْ جِئْنَا مَدَدًا The meaning of this verse is as follows Say, if all the sea were ink for my sustainer's words The sea would indeed be exhausted But my sustainer's words would never be exhausted And thus it would be if you were to add To it, see upon see. This verse for me describes firstly Allah's infinite bounty that He has prepared for all of us, the mercy and all the grace that I enjoy on a daily basis. If I was to put all the mercy of Allah together and if I began to write them with pen and ink and if I was to make the ocean an ink pot soon the ocean would disappear and if I was to add more and more ocean to it they would too disappear pretty quickly but not the mercy and the grace of Allah that I enjoy every day in my life the second part of this verse or second meaning to this verse is Allah's infinite power, His reach, His presence. It's something that you cannot describe with human words. I've never found enough words in myself or vocabulary in English or any other languages that I may speak to be able to describe Allah and His majesty, His power and His essence, His reach and all. Things that belongs to Allah, the most sublime, the most merciful So these two meanings really keep me going on a regular basis On one hand, the grace and the mercy that I enjoy in my life On the other hand, Allah's reach, His power, His majesty There is a very beautiful story that I always quote And I remember this story very well when a companion of the Prophet came to the Prophet And Prophet said to him You did something amazing yesterday That even got the angels stuck The companion said "O oh, Prophet of Allah What did I do that got the angels stuck? The Prophet said Whenever you do something The angels write down the rewards straight away The angels that are responsible For your record keeping so if you do something right, they write down and give you the rewards that you will gain in the Day of Judgment. If you do something wrong, they would write it down and they would also write down the punishment that has been assigned for you. However, the Prophet said, you uttered few words yesterday. The words were, and the companion said, يَا رَبْ كَمَا يَنْبَغِي لِجَلَالِ Praise be to you, O Lord, O my Lord As much as your majesty deserves As much as your power deserves And as much as your face deserves So the angels were stuck Because they don't know how much Allah's power Allah's majesty, Allah's face deserves So they said to Allah, O Allah, what should we write? In response Allah said to the angels Just write down the text of the dua Literally what my servant said And on the day of judgment I shall give him the return, the reward This verse and this story For me are interconnected I live my life with the grace and mercy of Allah If I fail to thank him on a regular basis then I'm ungrateful. I live by his mercy and grace. If I am not gracious enough and express my gratitude towards him and thank him, then I am a very ungrateful person. So when I think about the ocean and I think about the pen and I think about the ink and I think about Allah's names and I think about Allah's mercy, I'm overwhelmed. I'm awe-inspired. I am struck by the sheer magnanimity of Allah's kindness The magnificence of Allah's mercy And the benevolence Allah displays to my living on a daily
1: basis And so Masur, your motto is to inform, inspire and to influence How did you come to choose these three areas to focus on? I've been working in the activist environment or
0: field If you would like to call it for now Oh, wow, well, I've even lost count. I started from the age of 17. I've always been very conscientious. I've always been very concerned by the troubles I see in the society and I've always been concerned because of the lack of solutions. So while I have had mountains of criticisms to throw at the troubles around, I've also worked tirelessly to find solutions. In my 25, 30-year history of working only recently probably about seven, eight years ago when I stood for the parliamentary election in London I sat down and I decided I need to narrow down my scope of work I can't be everything and can't be running around like a headless chicken or chasing my tail so I said what am I good at? what are my good what are my good skills? and it came to one single skill set that I have, which is to talk, public talking, public speaking. How do I best use my speaking ability to the best of humanity and of myself? And it's the back of that conversation, self-analysis, I've come to realise that three words sums up my, or sum up my life's motive or my mission to inform, to influence and to inspire positive change in people.
1: So Masroor, tell us about the next item you'll take with you on the desert island. The second item
0: I've chosen for my journey is also a verse from the Quran, where Allah says, <laughs> And if they, and that is if my servant asks you about me, indeed I am near. I respond to the call of my servants whenever they call upon me. Let them then respond to me and believe in me so that they might follow the right path. This is a very intimate verse for me. It's where Allah is telling us, teaching us a new way of relating to him. We should know that Allah is very, very close to us. So close that in this verse, Allah directly answers his own question. My servant asks you about me. He doesn't say tell them. He says it himself. I am indeed very near, taking away the intermediary. So near that he responds to all my calls every time I call upon him. Allah responds to all my calls. Will I not then respond to Allah's call? And what is Allah's call? That I should believe in Allah. I should believe in the things that He has promised. I should believe in the hereafter. I should believe in the rewards and the returns. I should believe in the terrible plight that awaits me if I have miserably failed my life. I should believe that if I lead a good and virtuous life that I will be successful. All these things require deep and depth of belief. And in return, Allah promises to show us the right path. Almost holding our hands, holding my hands, He would show me the right path. The path that He has favoured. The path that will take me to success. The intimacy between me and Allah is described in this very verse. That He is omnipresent. He is listening to me. He is aware of my needs even before I utter them. In fact, He is aware of my needs before I become aware of them myself. And He responds to them. Sometimes people get frustrated because they think Allah is not responding to their dua or their supplication in the way they want the supplication to be responded. Well, how do I know The way I want my supplication to be responded would actually be beneficial for you. It could be harmful for me. And because it could be harmful for me, Allah would respond to it in the way that is most beneficial to me. Therefore, He responds in the way He thinks is good for me. Because I don't have the holistic picture of the entire universe I don't have the picture of past, present and future. I am very subjective where Allah is very objective. He has the bird's eye view as we call it. About everything. So he is very close to me. He asks me all the time to respond to him. To believe in him. To follow his path. So that I don't make mistakes. So that I don't suffer. So that I don't suffer the consequences of my misjudgment. This is another sign of Allah's mercy and kindness, depicted by a very intimate conversation. I get the chance to talk to him five times a day when I stand in the prayer. He responds to every word I utter in my prayer. When I am bowing down, I am getting closer to him. When I prostrate, I am the closest possible. I am closest to him. It is this kind of relationship that I cherish when I reflect on the verses of the Qur'an. The relationship that is described in this verse is a symbiotic relationship, a relationship where I depend on Allah and Allah loves me depending on Him, asking Him, seeking His forgiveness and His blessings. I cherish every moment of this Amazing relationship This verse epitomizes That relationship In its totality Allah indeed Is very
1: very close to me uh, We've known each other for many years But I first came across you as quite uh, A very articulate and engaging public speaker um, Were you always naturally gifted With the power of speech? If being
0: identified as a speaker At the age of 7-8 Is at an indication of a natural talent then yes probably i'm not good at singing i can tell you that now i've tried it a couple of times and i've been told not to sing not to even bother um, i'm not very good with any sports absolutely useless and for a very long time i was told that i'm not very good when it comes to writing actually i was told i was rubbish at it so, I found naturally, and I suppose tapping onto my, my natural talent, speaking most comfortable.
1: Believe it or not, I'm enjoying writing more now than, than speaking. And who told you at the age of, uh, earlier on that you were not a good writer? Where did that come from? In the activist world, uh, you have
0: magazines, for example. Uh, people publish papers, etc. And I showed interest in writing and I submitted my pieces and they said, nah, this is rubbish, what is this? And I felt very disheartened. I remember my first ever writing piece at the age of 17 or even 18 was rejected and I was very disheartened. Never wrote again. Probably until the age of about 30. And then, um, you remember ML Magazine? Yes, yes. Um it's a founding editor, Mahmoud and Sarah. They invited me to write a column for their magazine. and it was actually Mahmoud's encouragement for me to write that got me writing. So I used to write a column every month and I wrote for ML magazine, probably between five and six years, and I didn't fail ever. I always submitted, and he edited them meticulously in encouraged me to continue. And now I find myself almost addicted to writing. When I sit down to write, I end up writing 10 pages without even realising. And thoroughly
1: enjoy the experience. Because you're very prolific on social media and stuff with your writings. I mean, do you think that it's different between being a public speaker and preparing for speeches and writing? It has to be very different. If you confuse
0: them, then you can't really flourish in either of those and my early criticisms of writing was I'm writing like I'm speaking but you know what I have actually told those people I'm going to ignore your advice I'm going to develop my own style of writing so when I give my writing to editors now I tell them I don't want any structural changes I don't want your style of writing to impose and be imposed on me I want you to edit just the grammar and any obvious mistakes leave my writing alone and now they respect it. People realise this is a style of writing which captivates some people. And they're happy, I'm happy. Do you find it quite therapeutic writing? Oh, very therapeutic. When I'm travelling, I write a lot. I'm travelling on the train often, I'm flying. And every opportunity I have, I use my phone. A uh, little phone with my fingers, I tap away. Um and I write my travel journeys, I write my thoughts, I like write my political commentaries, analysis, I write sermons, I write Quranic reflections, all because I find writing to be immensely pleasurable and therapeutic.
1: And a lot of these thoughts and reflections are they, are they always things going through in your mind, or do you have to be quite active to come up with? I guess some people find it hard to reflect and think about things but for you is it quite natural a lot of are there's all the things and thoughts buzzing through your head and you want to put it down on paper is that constantly it's buzzing in my head i'm
0: thinking about everything every time everyone says something if something is um, attractive eye catchy i'll stop i'll take a note very quickly and i'll then elaborate When I read an article, when somebody shares an article with me, I just don't read it and put it aside. I write, I read, I reflect, and I try and elaborate. I try and see if I can find more about it. So I think being reflective, and both in my spoken and writing, um, passion. I have been extremely blessed by Allah for um, having this spontaneous um, ability or skills to be, re- re- be able to respond in both fields. So because of Friday sermons that I, I do, I have to prepare for that. That's both oral, in other words, I have to present it,
1: and I have to write if I need to. So it's very powerful tool. And you mentioned that in terms of when you talked about being identified as a public speaker at a very young age, seven or eight, was there something in particular that happened around that time that made you realize that you were good at speaking or people commented on that? Well, my father took me to uh, singing school.
0: My sister and I were together. I think I was six or seven and my sister was five or similar age. She's slightly younger than me. Um, and um, my father was very enthusiastic to get us both singing. And the teacher said to me, OK, young man, let me hear your voice. And I sang. Then he said to My sister, why don't you sing too? And she did. And then he looked at me and he said to me, as for you young man, don't bother singing. Go and learn how to speak. And I took his words to my heart, at the depth of my heart. It actually resonated so deeply. And it's from those words that I was inspired. And I started speaking, learning. I used to mumble on my walks back and forth from school, If I'm walking on my own to a playground to see my friends play, I used to mumble words. I used to speak. So it became almost a... It's not an obsession, but the desire to learn to speak. And I think that's where it began.
1: Tell us about the next item you'll take with you on the desert island.
0: The third item for my journey is also a verse of the Quran. I suppose you could see in my life, Quran plays a very important role. And it has to. I was given Quran from the day I was born. Even today now, as I speak to you all, share my thoughts and my own feelings, Quran plays a very important role. Anyway, this verse is very significant. It is found in Surah 3 verse 26. This is Surah imran Surah 3 verse 26. I call it the Verse of power. Qul illahumma malika al mulkitu'til mulkaman tasha. Watanzi'u al mulkamiman tasha. Watu'izu man tasha. Watu'zillu man tasha. Bi adikal khayr. Inna kulli shayin qadir. Allah says in the Quran, Say, O God, Lord of all dominion, you grant dominion unto whom you will. And you take away dominion from whom you will. And you exalt whom you will. And you take away exaltation from whom you will. In your hand is all the power of good. Verily, you have power to will anything. This, to me, especially when I am looking at myself, And feeling powerless, feeling rather sad, uplifts me, knowing there is nothing in this world that can be powerful enough to give me dominion. There is nothing in this world that can give me honor. There is nothing in this world that can take power away from me and take my honor away from me. Nothing. Except by Allah's will. This is a very difficult verse to understand for many people For me to be powerful I need to do certain things in the right way For me to remain powerful I need to do things in the most powerful and pragmatic way I need to follow the sunnah of Allah His own method, his own tradition, his own system, if I go against that system, I will become least powerful. So the most important element of being powerful is that you do everything using justice and fairness, as your yardstick and measure. When you fail to be just and fair, you lose your right to be powerful. When you fail to serve humanity, giving them the right that they deserve, you deserve to lose power. And the same goes for honor. I am only honorable for as long as Allah gives me honor. I lose honor when Allah wills that to happen. So power belongs to Allah. Honor belongs to Allah. And he only gives it to me And I deserve to have it. When I look around in my life, I'm very grateful to Allah for all the things that He has given me. To this date, I'm so privileged, so humbled by the grace, the mercy, and the power and the honor He has bestowed upon me. I couldn't have asked for anything more. So when I look at my life, I realize all good lies in Allah's hands. And all power comes by His will. I can want, I may want to fly. I may not be able to do it. I may want to become the Prime Minister of this country. I may not become. It has to be willed. And that is my belief. But I don't stop there. I have to work hard and I have to deserve it. I have to strive and struggle to overcome the challenges that come my way ultimately it happens only when it has been willed you cannot shorten it you cannot prolong it you cannot make it speedier you cannot attain it quicker it will happen when it is supposed to be it is not meant to be therefore it did not happen but you must work hard and you must do everything in your capacity Allah has all the power. And I, with no power, have to keep on working hard. And my working hard, and as Allah's will, when it coincides,
1: I become recipient of what has been willed for me. And you spent your childhood between London, I think East London, and Bangladesh. Tell us a bit about those early days and I guess between these two countries I mean how did that come about and how much time did you spend in both of these places
0: my parents came to the UK my father came in 1956 my mother came in 1966 Um, I was born in Bangladesh in 1971 when they both went for a holiday unfortunately a war between Pakistan and Bangladesh or East Pakistan and West Pakistan at that time broke out and my mother got stuck fully pregnant with me so I was born over there, but very soon I came back to the UK. Um, so I was in the UK growing up in the East End of London was um not just terrifying but brutalizing. It's left scars deeper than my words can ever describe racism, exclusion, discrimination, bad neighbours, violent attacks. On my physical body, our house, um, it was a terrible, terrible early few years in, in in the East End of London. I have vivid memories of many incidents. Every time I think about them,
1: you you're being physically attacked yes, as well, and of course, f- facing racism at a young age, very young age. Was there not quite a large ethnic population anywhere? Was it in the seventies? There was there was nobody
0: in our entire area. We probably had two or three. Asian families. And so there, we were an easy target for the NF National Front and its headquarters just around the corner. Sun newspaper, unfortunately, had moved in the area. They bought a massive warehouse. Things were not looking very good. Dogs were... or well, I remember one of our neighbours used to let his dog loose so that he would chase me around and jump on me and cause me all sorts of misery. I remember bottles being thrown at our direction stones thrown out through our window, our kitchen window, our bathroom window being broken very regularly. My father's car windscreen shuttered while I'm inside. My face cut, blood pouring from it. So it was quite a traumatic few years. So my father saw no future for his children in this country. He said to himself, OK, I'm not going to allow any further racism to take my children. So he decided to leave London and went to Bangladesh and found a school that... The best school in the country that money could buy. And he put me in it. It's a boarding school. But <clears throat> he was here. His business was here. his Everything was here. He couldn't live there forever. So he left me in a boarding school and came back. And it's after seven years of studying in Bangladesh. Studying Islamic studies in an Islamic school. I then came back to the UK to
1: join them. So, so what were those years in the boarding school like? Did, did oh, you find that really hard? Well, it, it's a mix... A mixture of Hardship
0: Ease It was a boys school And you know A boarding school Full of uh, Very very young boys Ranging from the age of Seven till Twenty maybe But it was an Islamic school So there was a very strong Powerful moral ethos That was being taught To all of us The school was brilliant Because it's actually Shaped me And it's made me Who I am I think In the tradition Of Islamic schools Most Islamic schools either teach you how to be a traditional scholar uh, they call Mawlana or mullah as they call them um, or they teach you secular values or secular education where you don't learn anything about Islam whereas our school was a combination school it taught us both so that balance between secular and material sorry ma- secular and spiritual or material and spiritual began from my early days so that was the most profound Um, influence and I believe the most uh, formative influence in my life and I am very grateful that I had that opportunity. That's probably why I'm still balanced in my approach to the faith and my things that I do. So that school had a very good influence on me. Boarding school is a mixed um, bag but that's life. Was it hard to be away from the family? Of course, very hard to be away from your family. I wouldn't recommend boarding schools to anybody. Because I think boarding schools deprive um, children of building emotional relationship with their parents, with their siblings. They become isolated um, and they form um, very non-emotionally intelligent relationship in, even later in life. So I struggled with it for a long time until I actively went and learned how to become emotionally more intelligent. Um, it's also very difficult to be so far away from your loved ones when you are growing up when you need them around you most you're vulnerable Um, at the age of seven washing up your own clothes um, making your own bed every morning uh, doing your own everything is hard it prepares you for life yes but it deprives
1: you from enjoying an emotional relationship that is enriching and do you think in some way that has affected you as Father, you've got you've got children now. Do you think those experiences are you are they either directly or subconsciously, in terms of what you experienced during that childhood, has that affected how you care for your children and the, the I guess the future that they have and and the childhood that they enjoy? Do you think that has affected you in terms of how you?
0: Well, I certainly have a very that? very strong uh, feeling of how I want to bring up my children. I certainly am very conscious of not repeating the same thing that I've experienced, especially the negative ones. I want to give them the positive experiences. I'm very conscious of being very emotionally connected with them. I'm very conscious of giving them a powerful start to life where um, I don't want them to feel left on their own to fend for themselves. Um, All of those things definitely influences my approach to how we bring up our children. We've been homeschooling our children. Uh, not because of my boarding school experience. Boarding school experience has certainly shaped my thinking that they will never go to a boarding school, um, if I can avoid it. But it's certainly influenced my approach to education. I don't see our education today um, sufficient to nurturing the fitra. The natural human disposition, the innocent one, the one which is given by Allah from the day we are born and even before, um, that nurturing element is missing. So all of my boarding school experience and going to a private school in Bangladesh, Islamic school in Bangladesh, has helped me shape my children's education and their
1: future. Any experiences in in this boarding school, do you think that ever led to any anger or resentment? Yes, there are a lot of anger and resentment towards various aspects of living in a boarding
0: school. Um, when I was seven, I probably needed my mother's hug and a kiss and a story to be read to me. Or, and I could run to her every time And my mother's, my father's uh, strong shoulders and loving embrace and, um, you know, the supportive uh, presence that was missing. Money cannot buy you happiness, money cannot buy you a good future though it can probably put fake uh, future in front of you Um, so it's left me feeling um, deprived of love from a very earlier age so I have to go an extra mile to gain love and definitely that creates resentment unless you have to you have to process it and you have to uh, rationalize it and you have to Um, speak about it to your loved ones and you either have to forgive and move on or you can wallow in your own sadness and feel miserable and I'm not that kind I don't feel sad and I don't wallow in my sadness
1: and I guess with your experiences both in Bangladesh and then when you came was there a sense that you were the outsider I mean how accepted were you amongst peers when you were younger both in Bangladesh you may well have been seen as the English lad and when you came here Bengali but you know. So was there that real sense of feeling that you know it was a hard to fit in and feel that sense of belonging because did you feel slightly detached from everyone else? Yes, I did, definitely. When I went to Bangladesh I couldn't speak Bangla
0: first. I was about to be kicked out of the school because I couldn't even pass the basic exam. But I had to learn very fast. But in the process of learning Bangla, I'd forgotten English completely. So when I came back at the age of fourteen, I could not speak a word of English. So I was almost illiterate when it comes to English language. Relating to my school friends, even going to a shop and expressing my need or looking for something to buy, talking to a shop assistant, were all a struggle. Forming a relationship, forming a meaningful identity was difficult. Uh, You were neither Bangladeshi nor English. What do you do? And it was very, very tough uh, for me. I remember walking into a newsagent once and I asked for a an item to, that I wanted to buy and the shopkeeper burst out in laughter and I looked and I panicked and I think I was about 14 and I said to him, I asked in my broken English, why are you laughing? He goes, oh, you don't know how to speak English. You're pronouncing that word wrong. It sounds so, so funny. And I felt very insulted, deeply humiliated. I haven't forgotten it. And I made a promise to myself that I will learn English and I will learn very good English, for which you will envy me too.
1: And actually, that shopkeeper did envy me. Because people say you speak the Queen's English. Or did, was that something you focused on then when you came back in terms of eloquence and how you articulate speech, etc.? Was that something you just picked up on? I think it's that natural talent Allah has given me to be
0: able to speak well. So if I learn a language, I learn it very well. When I began to learn English, I focused on learning it well. I used to read Guardian newspaper, for example. I used to read The Economist magazine. I began listening to Radio 4 program, World Service. I would watch highbrow programs in order for me to understand the real ways of articulating and speaking. It's a fascination I have. Um, Language fascinates me though I'm not very good with languages. I don't know many. I only know Bangla and English and, of course, a bit of Arabic. I wish I knew French. I knew. I wish I knew a bit more of many other languages. Um, but either way, I did focus. I had to be extra vigilant and I had to go out of my way to speak
1: better than everybody else. Not to prove a point, but I had already missed out. And so when you returned back to uh, the UK... Um I mean, do you think the London that you found in your teens was different than the London that you had left? The London that I left when I was seven and London that I found at the age of 14
0: was very different. Those racist thugs who attacked us on the streets had already fled. The white flight, as they call it, had already happened. The area where my parents had their house had already um, had a huge Asian in-flight or... um, Moving in, and the white communities had moved out.
1: And we're talking about areas around East London, London Mosque East London area, Whitechapel, and all that. Sort yeah.
0: Of. To be more precise, it's in in the area very well known. It's called Shadwell, near the highway near Wapping. Um, so it al- had already transformed. But coming back to the UK was disappointing, I'll tell you. Disappointing because it was very lonely. Coming back to the UK and making new relationship was very difficult. And you actually form friendship and relationships with people that last the longest at your school days. And I missed that. I didn't have that. I had it in
1: Bangladesh. And those kids that I studied in Bangladesh with, they're in Bangladesh. Have you ever kept in contact with any of them? Well, actually,
0: because it was a very yuppie school, a lot of expats or British boys had been sent there too. So there are a number of them in this country and I get to see them. Either way, even those relationships are not really meaningful. Because I, you don't get to spend quality time going through the complete education program together. You don't compete with one another. You don't actually get to finish your GCSEs or A-levels together and then go to universities together. You don't, because there is a disjoint. And that's the trouble. So when I came back, it was struggle. Probably struggle would be an underestimation of my um, challenges that I faced. I really, really went through a very hard time.
1: So Masrur, tell us about the next item you'll take with you on the desert island.
0: Next item I've chosen for my journey is a saying of our beloved Prophet of Allah sallallahu It is reported in Sahih al-Bukhari. The Prophet of Allah sallallahu said, Allah the Most High said, I am as my servant thinks I am. I'm with him when he mentions me. If he mentions me to himself, I mention him to myself. And if he mentions me in an assembly, I mention him in an assembly greater than the one he was in. If he draws near to me a hand's length, I draw near to him an arm's length. And if he comes to me walking, I go to him at speed. This is a very beautiful saying of the Prophet. How do you imagine Allah to be? Not in the physical form, but in the metaphorical sense. What do you expect of Allah? So Allah is saying, I am, as my servant, expects of me. If he thinks I'm kind, I am kind. If he thinks I'm merciful, I am merciful. If he thinks I am forgiving, I am forgiving. If he thinks, I am peace, I am peace. If he thinks, I am most beautiful, I am most beautiful. Allah is the way you think, he is. I love that saying. When I close my eyes, at times of difficulty and challenges, I think of Allah as my protector, as my saviour. At times when I am in need, I think of Allah as my helper. At times when I am in need of love, I think of Allah's mercy and His infinite love. At times when I'm desperate, I think of Allah's immense mercy. You think of Allah and He is like that. That's why He has given us the 99 qualities by which we should associate and imagine Allah. The 99 names that he has. Asma'ullah al-Husna. One of my favorite things that I do. And then he says, I am with him when he mentions me. So in other words, the fact that I'm mentioning Allah right now, he is with me. If I mention Allah to myself, Allah mentions me to himself. In other words, Allah is now mentioning me by my name. Ajmal Masrur, has mentioned me. Allah is mentioning my name to Himself. If I mention Allah's name in a gathering, He mentions my name in a gathering. My gathering may be small, but Allah's gathering being bigger and better and greater. The gathering of the angels. SubhanAllah, what an amazing thing. Allah is mentioning my name in a gathering of angels. I feel very fortunate. If I draw nearer to Allah by an arm's length, Allah, hands length, Allah draws near me an arm's length. If I'm walking towards Allah, Allah is running in my direction. In other words, Allah is always ahead of me drawing towards him. If I want to go near him, he's coming nearer to me. This is remarkable. It is not difficult to become close to Allah. That's why this is a favorite saying of the Prophet for me. It's known as Hadith Qudsi. Allah is the way I think Allah is. I'm able to expect Allah. And therefore I develop my life based on that expectation. Subhanallah. Let's think about it. I want me, myself, to always think of Allah. Very selfish, of course. But then Allah says, if I think of him, if I mention him, he will mention me. Why not? So, in this lonely travel of mine, in the desert island, if I have an item with me, above all items, I'd rather have Allah with me for he would be sufficient for me.
1: And obviously at the moment, faith and Islam is a real central part of your life and the essence of what you do. Was faith always present when you were growing up? Was that always in the household and your earliest memories and also in your teens? Was Islam and faith always there? Islam and faith was always there in my life because my father was
0: an Islamic scholar. He brought us up with Islam in our everyday diet. Not a single day had gone in our life that I didn't hear my father read the Quran in the morning and Quran in the evening before he would go to sleep or after he'd woken up. Five daily prayers were very normal. Islamic etiquette normal, and were normal in our house. Manners, morals, these were everyday vocabulary. In our house, we had the grandest of sheikhs, if, that's, uh, um, if there are... Anything, there are people like that. Really great scholars had come and had dinner. I would sat on their laps, had played with them. They'd spoken to me. So I was very fortunate to have had such an exposure. And I think love of Islam didn't form because of that only. My love of Islam and passion for Islam came as a result of my own inquiry and further studies about Islam, I, I rationalize Islam a lot. I use my logic, I use my reflective um, part of my brain constantly to look at religion. I say, if religion isn't practical, then that's not a religion for me. Everything about Islam is very practical. And it makes sense. So, what makes sense to me, I try and articulate that to others in the same way.
1: And you said your father was a religious scholar. So, what was that like? Was that in the UK as well? Was he? He studied in Bangladesh, of course, and then he came to the UK.
0: He became, he remained quite a pivotal uh, part of the Muslim community's early growth in London, I suppose, uh, when there were not many imams and scholars. Was around. he
1: also quite a good orator and well? He was,
0: he was, but mainly in Bangla. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't have the support, perhaps. Or not as much support that I that I'd enjoyed. Um, he was an orphan; he had lost his father when he was very young. So he made his uh, life-changing decision to study Islam, and he did it all. All his to the best of his abilities, he did study. Um, so he was a scholar. He was active. He would speak. He would debate, discuss. He would be a prolific, prolific um, debater amongst his friend circle, and people would be almost terrified of engaging in a debate with him because he would win hands down. So I still have this vivid memory of my father's very powerful presence.
1: And you've talked also publicly about um, how more recently his issues with memory, etc. On um, my father's memory? Yes.
0: yes, my father is now
1: over 90 and has
0: lost all his memory. He has got absolutely none left. Um, Obviously dementia sufferer and old age, but he's very strong physically. I feel my father is being tested to his utmost. Um, he's physically strong, but incapable of making sense of anything, we've been tested. And seeing such a towering man, such a strong man who dominated our lives when we were younger, being reduced to less than a child's life in his old age, it's very sad.
1: And you have siblings as well?
0: Yes, of course. I've got five more: three, two brothers and three sisters. We are, I'm the oldest amongst everyone. Um, everyone is in different um, places and journeys in their lives. Some of them have settled here. Some of them have gone abroad. They do all sorts of things.
1: And did you have a sense of responsibility as the eldest towards them? Or did you? Was that placed on your shoulders at an early age? Well, my relationship with my father deteriorated from the age of 14 when i came back to the uk because my
0: father by then had lost hope given up on his business and became quite depressed so i almost took up the responsibility of my siblings i didn't want their future to be jeopardized i wanted them to study uh, but at the age of 14 you couldn't do anything so i had to wait until i was much older so a sense of responsibility dawned on me from a very early age, and I think I actively took it from the age of 18. Um, And I did all my best to make sure that my siblings were protected. But siblings are siblings. I couldn't replace a father figure for them. My father is still alive, of course. Um, So I had a very strong sense of responsibility, and I had to deliver on it.
1: So Masru, tell us about the next item you'll take with you on the desert island.
0: The next item I would take with me on my journey would be a pen and some paper to be able to write poems. When I am on my own, when I'm feeling very emotional, I write poems. Here is a poem I wrote not that long ago. It's called Love. What really is love? I hear myself questioning. I keep on dreaming, I've been looking for love perfect as a white dove. In the darkest moments, my heart's longing, my desire's response, you could be the love I've been yearning. In my loneliness, I wish for a tender look, loving words in your very private book. You could be the love I've been craving. In the depth of my emotion, I feel a deep sense of rejection. I'm not good enough to be loved and cherished, left alone only to be perished. I am not that tough. I wish for a gentle touch in love and in affection. I live in constant consolation. I hope for your fondness, warmth, care and kindness. You could be the love I have been waiting. In the night of darkness, silence and stillness, I lay on my bed feeling, needing love and healing. Who is going to love me with all my imperfections, blemishes and limitations? Love is the spark of life, healer of soul's strife. As the heart beats, love happily waits for the true right moment to strike the least expectant for I am looking for love. This is the poem I wrote about love. My wife asked me, why did I write that poem? Was I missing love? I simply told her I was missing her. Which is true. When I write poetry, I find the inner feelings emanating from my pen, from my thoughts, and coming on a piece of paper. To me, that is truly remarkable. To be able to express my inner emotions. And I want you to express your emotions too. You see, Allah has given you and I emotions. And in a desert island, all of my own, I think I will be most happy because of my pen and paper and the fact that I'll be left all on my own to write my own poems. Great. Maybe I could share it with you when I come back. Maybe I could do something more amazing with my poems. But you know what? Poetry is the spark of our hearts. In fact, some people say poetry represents the deeper meaning of who we are. I love poetry. I do read a lot of poems, English, I read Bengali poems. Believe it or not, I love them. I listen to Urdu poems. I listen to Arabic poetry. If I could understand Persian and French, I would devote a lot of my time listening to them too. So the next item that I would take on my desert island trip would be a pen and some paper. A pen with sufficient ink to be able to write poems and then I think I'll be very happy. I won't be lonely if I was writing poems. Let me share with you another poem that I really like. Again, I wrote this in one of those moments of deep feelings. One day, I woke up one morning and I decided to write a poem. That's how it was. And I called it Love and Hate. One day love called out to hate and made the feelings known and straight. You are responsible for causing pain. You hold back people in an emotional bane. You create deep aggravation, leaving people in terrible frustration. You are synonymous with revulsion, animosity, abhorrence and aversion. I am the essence of God's will. I feel, but more importantly, I heal. I soothe your agonizing toil. I ease your tormented travail. I am the consolation for your distress. I am your only hope to impress. You make generations carry pain. Poisonous burden without any gain. Disabling families from letting go. Preventing relationship to grow. I bring warmth and happiness. You bring venom and sadness. I build friendship and family. You are responsible for misery. You cause destruction. I am master of construction. You feed and encourage anger. You put the heart in mortal danger. Soul feels infected by your malice. Empty, malevolent and callous. I bring to life luminous light. I eradicate your infectious blight. You and I could never share the same location. Your world and mine are at constant collision. I am the bonding cement, fermenting safe space for peace and content. Husband and wife seek solace, heavenly love, and God's grace. I keep them together, you break them asunder. Brothers and sisters in unbearable ties, I do everything to scrub away all your lies. Their hearts. Bind in sibling affection, overwhelming tenderness and compassion. You detest their benevolence and fondness, but I keep the light of hope and forgiveness. You only stoke vengeance. I wholeheartedly promote tolerance. You encourage deadly violence. I am forever expressing condolence. You constantly spread malice. I long to promote lasting peace. You are eager to cause insecurity. My duty is to inspire stability. I am most desired. You are certainly abhorred. I cause people to feel elated. You make them feel humiliated. You are hate, the fuel of hell. I am... One of God's names, Al-Wadud, the most loving, source of all feelings and heart's longing.
1: I am love, the currency of heaven. Imam Ajwam you became very involved in activism. And I understand your first meeting with Yusuf Islam was quite an unusual one. Yusuf Islam was very
0: unusual. I'd never known the man. I'd never met him. I'd heard him singing, but I didn't take much interest because I'm not a very... Remember, my musical desire was dampened and I had uh, almost subconsciously abandoned even any element of that in my life. But anyway, it was during Salman Rushdie's demonstration, anti-Salman Rushdie demonstration in Hyde Park Corner that we young had congregated. And, we and were, that was
1: the late 80s, I think? It yeah, was, yeah, around
0: that time. I think I was 17 or 18. And we were all doing all sorts of weird things, uh, inspired by our elders. I regret them now pretty badly, because I don't think that was the wise thing to do. And our elders were not the wisest even then politically. So they thought, this is it. We need to flex our muscles. They did bring the people out. And we were there in the Hyde Park, um, marching and demonstrating. And um, what ensued afterward was a pretty violent clash between some Muslim youth and the police. And I was there with my megaphone, always at the loudest voice, and I was um, leading a rally. And then police started beating us with their batons and horses and all the rest of the stuff. And it's in that process that I was picked up by the police and thrown in the back of a police van. And the police didn't put a handcuff on me or anything like that. And Yusuf Islam was walking around. I didn't even know it was Yusuf Islam. He came and he said to the police officer, what are you doing? Police officer said, go away. Then he said, I'm Cat Stevens. So the police officer said, so? And then in that conversation, I think uh, Yusuf Islam reached out into the van and said to me, come on, get out. And then I fled <laughs> as my last memory and the first memory of Isa of Islam. Of course, I met him uh, many years later. Um, it's not that he saved me. I don't think I would have been charged in him for anything. But it was interesting <laughs> that there I was, young, 17-year-old, completely lost, lost in the sense that doing the wrong thing, regretfully. Um, and Isu of Islam comes to my save, uh, to saving my life, my saviour.
1: And so I guess around that age in you late teens early 20s what was your life like in terms of islam and activism and politics etc so when i f- f- came back to this country
0: at the age of 14 i tried my best to fit in i tried to um, enroll into a school nothing worked by the time i was 16 i dropped out i just couldn't make sense i didn't speak english i couldn't connect i didn't have any any qualification nothing it was very difficult So I started working at a newsagent, part-time, but at the same time yearning for education. So I enrolled into a college, wanted to learn English, wanted to get my basic GCSEs done. And it's at that college my inner dimension of faith and practice opened up. I saw that kids were coming to that college, a lot of them were taking cannabis, smoking terribly badly, were in terrible state and I didn't like it. I was 17, 18. So one Ramadan, I decided to take action. I put a piece of paper on the wall of the college library saying, I um, would like to start an Islamic society. If anybody is interested, please put your name here. Within two days, that piece of paper was full. I put another piece of paper. Something like 60 people had signed up. So then I put a notice that those days there were no emails. I put a notice up on the same board, If you're interested in setting up an Islamic society, we're having our first meeting. I was a 17-year-old kid, and a number of uh, young kids turned up into a classroom. We all met, and we formed an Islamic society, and I became its president. And we started. I started. And it was an amazing experience. I did my GCSEs, I did my A-levels in that same college, and I had running battles with the authority. The principal and i we couldn't see each other we were like talking cheese but you know at every turn she made my life a living hell but by the next turn i won every single one of them she blocked my entrance to the college i won she wanted to kick me out of the college i stayed she stopped us from praying i had a prayer room she would close down the offices or lecture theaters i was flabbergasted when the caretaker of the college embraced Islam. So the principal would say no but the caretaker would open up all the rooms for us. (laughs) It was really an amazing experience and those three years probably put a practical shape to my activism. For the first time I could do things with my knowledge the learning I had. I could teach other kids. I could sit with them and debate and discuss I would be in college canteen standing on top of the dustbin giving a speech debating with everybody it was just the best time of my life. Is that your fondest memories of early activities yes definitely fondest from um, in all in every way possible because that's where my well I was I had just finished my studies in Bangladesh I had learned but I'd never practiced what I'd learned. All my practices were put to test in this college. I had to not only practice my faith, but I had to teach people who did not know anything. I had to engage with people who were Muslims and non-Muslims. Within the first year, 19 people became Muslim in my college. So these were examples of how um,
1: if you work, you can see change. If you don't work, you never see change. So do you think you've always been somebody who fights the establishment, fights the status quo? Because even, you know, these stories that you mentioned, but then even more laterally, you know, there's things like with this flight bans and etc. etc. You all seem to be, you know, a thorn in the side of establishment. Is that fair, do you think? I think my biggest um, problem is I get very,
0: very worked up when I see injustices anywhere. Um, And when that happens, then I get into this hyper mode. Uh, And that's probably what you're referring to, that I'm a thorn to the establishment. Because you've been criticised
1: by Bangladeshi politicians. Egyptians.
0: I've been banned from Bangladesh. I've I've got my name written on many persona non grata lists in various countries. Not because I've done anything illegal. It's just that I'm very vociferous about human rights, about human values, dignity and honor, freedom and democracy. And I am consistent about it. I'm very passionate about Islam. And some people don't like that, but you know, it's good. It shows that you're doing something good. It shows that your work is
1: actually uh, rattling some feather. So how did you come to receive these death threats more in the last few years? It's probably the same story. When
0: ISIS, in fact, uh, Al-Shabaab from Somalia Um, I was heavily criticising their activities, especially after the murder of Lee Rigby in Woolwich in London. One of my um, interviews for, I can't remember which TV station it was, went viral within 24 hours, within a couple of hours after the interview. Um, And it uh, grew quite rapidly. And it's at the back of that that I received Al-Shabaab death threat. And then last year, 2016, March, I think, received a death threat of a global list of people that ISIS wants to eliminate, and I was one of them. Of course it's sad, it poses a great threat to my family's harmony and peace, but you know I am not even bothered by an ounce by these death threats, if anything it makes me even more um, energised eager and interested in, in doing what I do, stand sh- for justice and fairness.
1: But surely something like that must shake you, make you stop and reflect and I just mainly thinking about family and the effect that does it. has it changed the way that you live or hmm. is it something that you've thought twice about, maybe I do need to take a back seat? No, it hasn't changed my way
0: in that way in the way you've described, it has changed me and made me more active. So I believe if uh, my death is written up there In the heavens No one can prolong it or shorten it And if my death is not written it No one can take me away So ISIS or anybody, they can try I don't wait for somebody else To determine my death or my life My my Lord Allah decides So I'm going to carry on The same for my family Allah is sufficient for me and my family And I will give them the best I can Of course I'm not Careless, I'm not kind. I'm a very careful person. But does it stop me from doing what I do? No. Do I look over my shoulder? No. Do I worry about it and stay awake even a second of my life? No. I just get on with it. And I believe it's getting on with my work that keeps me alive.
1: How did you come to find out that you were receiving death threats from these organisations? Well, security services within the UK they came to inform me. They
0: came to my house, telling me that this is what's happened. Unfortunately, as a consequence, I had to move my house. First death threat, my family moved out of the UK and went to Spain and lived there for two years, just for their own peace of mind and focus. So I commuted. When they came back, I received the second death threat. So they were to leave. I don't live in my own house. I rent somewhere else. Um, So there has been some changes in life. But security services informed. And of course they won't come to knock on my door unless there is credible evidence to support that my life is in danger. All of these things are indications of the topsy-turvy world in which we live today. There are fundamentally flawed, twisted and damn right bizarre, ignorant Muslims. And I am ashamed of calling them Muslims. Who have given a bad name to Islam today. And I challenge them. That's probably why they like to give death threats to me. And there is also a very double-sided or um, very duplicitous, double-standard, hypocritical stance that many of our governments in the UK and Europe and America often adopt and take when it comes to their unethical and rotten foreign policies in the Muslim-majority countries. We are caught, and I feel I'm caught between the two. I tell the ISIS lot that they're stupid and they need to change and we don't want to engage with such terrorists. I say to the Muslim despots and dictators in the Muslim world that they're not legitimate, they need to go. And I tell the Western government, our governments, that their foreign policy is rotten. So I think I have many enemies, if you were to count. But, you know, enemies or no enemies, I will not go silent. There's a very nice poem that always influences me. It's a poem in Bengali written by Nazrul Islam, the poet of Bangladesh, where he says, I shall never go silent. In fact, I will only go silent that day when there will be no more oppression on this earth and when there will be no more cries of those who are oppressed. And that always motivates me to continue with my work to rid the world of, of, of oppression and tyranny and to see in, on this earth freedom, prosperity
1: and peace not just for one people but for everybody In your role as a broadcaster you work with uh, many media companies and documentary makers Now, there's some sections of our, of our community who are ready to criticize them as having some sort of wider agenda against Muslims do you find this is the case when you engage with these people
0: media is strange actually media is like a double edged sword some of them have an agenda and a large number of them are only interested in getting their audience rating higher their readership higher And we know who they are. But the media that I engage with on a regular basis, I find them more objective than the credit we give them. They're more thorough. They do follow a protocol of authenticity, factual correctness and accuracy. And as far as possible, a consistent, non-biased, objective reporting. So when I engaged with the media and I have given my edit for a program that I made with them, it's been done. When the Prophet of Allah sallallahu life was made, made by Raghi Omar for BBC One. I was sent the script and the, well, one cut before final cut and I made four amendments at every episode and all of the amendments were made because I had given my view that this is is not acceptable. So, on one hand, I have a very good experience of making documentaries, films, and other programs with the media. But I also have witnessed the continuous, incessant, negative stereotyping of Muslims by the news programs, owned by a section of the right-wing press and they're dominant it's that double-edged sword that we need to really manage I criticize Muslim communities failure to challenge and offer an alternative narrative either an alternative platform or be involved in creating an alternative narrative within the established media agencies I criticize the Muslims failure so I'm not the one who would say media is all wrong. Media has its own faults, but I believe Muslims
1: also have a huge amount of faults that they need to own up to. So Do you think there's a really inadequate response from the Muslim community and Muslims in terms of being in this whole sphere and domain of the media and polit- um, you know, current affairs, etc., and newsmaking? I think Muslims are, firstly, um, unavailable.
0: And when they do become available, they give very botched up substandard response and inadequate response to the 24-7 media and news culture that we see today. Um, There is no real rapid media response team within the Muslim community nationally or locally. Everyone is doing their bit. Everyone wants to become famous. I don't know why. They don't realize that the entire Muslim community's future is at stake because somebody's desire to become famous. We need to come together and create people who can robustly articulate a vision for Islam in this country. We don't need to defend Islam. We don't need to defend Allah. For sure, Allah can defend himself. We don't need to defend the Prophet of Allah either. Prophet of Allah. Allah will protect his honor. But what we have failed in doing is protecting the Muslim community and their narrative in this country. So that's where inadequacy is. And I think... Our lack of concerted effort to alter that worries me a lot.
1: So Masru, tell us about the next item you'll take with you on the desert island. The
0: next item I would take with me on my journey would be a pen and some paper to be able to write poems. When I am on my own, when I'm feeling very emotional, I write poems. Here is a poem I wrote not that long ago. It's called Love. What really is love? I hear myself questioning. I keep on dreaming. I've been looking for love perfect as a white dove. In the darkest moments, my heart's longing, my desire's response, it could be the love I've been yearning. In my loneliness, I wish for a tender look, loving words in your very private book. You could be the love I've been craving. In the depth of my emotion, I feel a deep sense of rejection. I'm not good enough to be loved and cherished, left alone only to be perished. I am not that tough. I wish for a gentle touch, in love and in affection. I live in constant consolation. I hope for your fondness, warmth, care and kindness. You could be the love I have been waiting. In the night of darkness, silence and stillness, I lay on my bed feeling, needing love and healing. Who is going to love me with all my imperfections, blemishes and limitations? Love is the spark of life, healer of soul's strife. As the heart beats, love happily waits for the true right moment to strike the least expectant. For I am looking for love. This is a poem I wrote about love. My wife asked me, why did I write that poem? Was I missing love? I simply told her I was missing her, which is true. When I write poetry, I find the inner feelings emanating from my pen, from my thoughts and coming on a piece of paper. To me, that is truly remarkable, to be able to express my inner emotions. And I want you to express your emotions too. You see, Allah has given you and I emotions, and in a desert island, all of my own, I think I will be most happy, because of my pen and paper, And the fact that I'll be left all on my own to write my own poems. Great. Maybe I could share it with you when I come back. Maybe I could do something more amazing with my poems. But you know what? Poetry is the spark of our hearts. In fact, some people say poetry represents the deeper meaning Of who we are. I love poetry. I do read a lot of poems. English. I read Bengali poems. Believe it or not, I love them. I listen to Urdu poems. I listen to Arabic poetry. If I could understand Persian and French, I would devote a lot of my time listening to them too. So the next item that I would take on my desert island trip would be a pen and some paper. A pen with sufficient ink to be able to write poems. And then I think I'll be very happy. I won't be lonely if I was writing poems. Let me share with you another poem that I really like. Again, I wrote this In one of those moments of deep feelings. One day, I woke up one morning and I decided to write a poem. That's how it was. And I called it Love and Hate. One day, love called out to hate. And made the feelings known and straight. You are responsible for causing pain. You hold back people in an emotional bane. You create deep aggravation. Leaving people in terrible frustration, you are synonymous with revulsion, animosity, abhorrence, and aversion. I am the essence of God's will. I feel, but more importantly, I heal. I soothe your agonizing toil. I ease your tormented travail. I am the consolation for your distress. I am your only hope to impress. You make generations carry pain. Poisonous burden without any gain. Disabling families from letting go. Preventing relationship to grow. I bring warmth and happiness. You bring venom and sadness. I build friendship and family. You are responsible for misery. You cause destruction. I am master of construction. You feed and encourage anger. You put the heart in mortal danger. Soul feels infected by your malice. Empty, malevolent and callous. I bring to life luminous light. I eradicate your infectious blight. You and I could never share the same location. Your world and mine are at constant collision. I am the bonding cement, fermenting safe space for peace and content. Husband and wife seek solace, heavenly love and God's grace. I keep them together, you break them asunder. Brothers and sisters in unbearable ties, I do everything to scrub away all your lies. Their hearts bind in sibling affection, overwhelming tenderness and compassion. You detest their benevolence and fondness, but I keep the light of hope and forgiveness. You only stoke vengeance. I wholeheartedly promote tolerance. You encourage deadly violence. I am forever expressing condolence. You constantly spread malice. I long to promote lasting peace. You are eager to cause insecurity. My duty is to inspire stability. I am most desired. You are certainly abhorred. I cause people to feel elated. You make them feel humiliated. You are hate. The fuel of hell. I am one of God's names, Al-Wadud, the most loving, source of all feelings and heart's
1: longing. I am love, the currency of heaven. As an Imam, what is your analysis of the condition of mosques and religious leaders in the UK? Well, our mosques have come a long way.
0: I remember before 9-11 incidents in the UK or in the, in America, and then July 7th bombing in London, the majority of the mosques were disengaged, not interested, but they had no choice but to start opening themselves. So things have changed. It's not enough. So still majority of the mosques don't have sermons for Fridays in English. They still insist on doing your bog-standard, 700 years old sermon written by the ottoman empire or emperor and they just read it without making any sense and why do you think that is intellectually nasha in uh, intellectually we have become a bankrupt people we are followers not inventors we're not thinkers anymore we're not critical thinkers when it comes to islam we just like to follow um, mosques have failed in many ways because remember majority of the mosques bring imam from abroad they were picked up from a village and brought here the new generation of imams who are being employed by British mosques who speak English who who were born in this country are or were trained by these foreign teachers whose priorities had nothing to do with Britain mosques are not open to women majority of the mosques in this country don't have space for ladies I think that's a disgrace even bigger disgrace is most mosques are not at all comfortable or friendly for young people they still have your um, back home uh, culture language spoken even the toilets they have which are flat who uses flat toilet in any houses in Britain and yet some of the mosques insist that they should
1: have a flat toilet and but do you think the problem is they just don't know how to change or there's a reluctance to change or a think, lack of insight that they don't want to
0: i think it's that i think it's creating a nostalgic space that they can come and feel that they're back in their villages in bangladesh pakistan or india or wherever they come from i think that's the problem they don't realize they don't live in those they don't live in those countries they live in the uk in the UK, you've got a huge and growing population of young Muslims who need an English response, who need modern response, who need rational response. Our mosques need to have space with, for women. We need to have young people, not in a tokenistic gesture, but fully involved and engaged in mosques. Our older generations need to resign. They need to hand over the mantle to the younger ones. And the sooner they resign, the sooner those mosques will actually come back to the 21st century
1: world. What would a good functioning mosque look like? What would this role be in the community? A good functioning mosque would be the nerve
0: centre from your cradle to your grave, which would be equally accessible to man, woman and children, which would provide non-discriminatory, non-denominational, non-ethnic, objective, open-minded services to everybody. A fully functional and uh, uh, truly honourable mosque is and should be run by qualified people. In those mosques, there should be social services, there should be welfare services, there should be education program, there should be income generation program. Those mosques should be open to Muslims and non-Muslims too. These places should become a centre of hope for people, a beacon of light where there is no light. I don't support separating and dividing our mosques because of our ethnic background. I think that's rotten. That's racism. We need to destroy that as soon as possible. Can you believe our mosques are still run on the basis of brotheries of Pakistan and your tribal lineage of India and your families of Bangladesh? Hello, wake up and smell the coffee. You don't live with those things in this country. So we are losing our generations of young people because mosques are not ready. I would like to change all these mosques and every mosque should have 50% Fifty percent in its management committee, man and fifty percent woman. It should have every mosque should have a youth club. Every mosque should have multipurpose hall. The prayer space should be very small, and the multipurpose hall should be opened up for Jum'ah. But the remaining time, it should be providing services to the community.
1: And what would you say though to those that say actually a lot of these issues that you raise, you know, is is not. There's no theological sort of grounding for that. So Islam do doesn't say have fifty percent, you know, or, or have women on the mixed committees on all these other issues. We, we don't shouldn't need. engage with these wider communities so that they'll use scripture or reasoning or um, the pretext of um, religious rules that would stop these things happening. What
0: kind of religious religious rules and what kind of scriptures are they quoting? I haven't come across a quote from the religion. That I so proudly follow and passionately teach others. Prophet of Allah did not prevent a woman from taking a leadership role. There is nothing a woman cannot do that a man can do in Islam, except a woman cannot lead a congregational prayer that is joint. Apart from that, she can do everything. She can be a director of a mosque. She can lead the mosque. uh, Umar ibn Khattab radiAllahu who appointed a woman to be the in charge of a marketplace. Allah talks about Mary, Maryam, being in charge of the place of worship for the Jewish people. If Allah is celebrating Maryam as the most chaste woman of entire humanity, and she was the caretaker of a mosque, for God's sake, which scripture are they quoting? Every mosque needs to open up its space. If it deprives women of space for prayer, it's depriving 50% or more of the population, and the teacher, and the mentor, and the guide of our future generations. Mothers are the center of everything. I challenge those theologians. Go, show me one theology that prevents a woman from taking a leadership role in the mosque. Show me one scripture that says we should not open up the mosques to young people or non-Muslims, if Prophet of Allah invited and allowed the Christians to pray their Christian prayer in Masjid al-Nawawi, his own mosque in Medina. What theology are you talking about? Most of these Imams or these quotes come from people who are trying to safeguard a cultural value that has nothing to do with Islam.
1: Now, you spend a lot of time across Europe um, with Muslim communities in particular. How do you feel those communities differ to the British community, if at all? Depends on which part of European country you're talking about. So in France, Muslims are
0: very, very badly treated. They have uh, their mosques get arbitrarily closed down by the authority. They have no citizenship in the formal sense of the word. They're living a substandard life. They're given a second-class treatment by the French authority. Moroccans and Algerians are despised, uh, rounded up often. And the social disharmony in France and racism and bigotry is just beyond description. So if France is a question, I'm afraid, it's not a country I would live in. The thing is, across Europe, I'm seeing increasingly the right-wing are getting worse day by day. They're flexing their muscles, they're doing all sorts of horrible things in the name of democracy and freedom. So Gert Wilder in Netherlands and Le Pen of France and others in other parts of uh, Europe. Increasingly, there is huge amounts of hostility between Muslims and the main society. And even the media, who all this time were quite left and socialist in their approach and their enterprise, now are prostituting themselves towards the right in order to live this populist life, populist mantra. It's a terrible situation for Muslims in Europe today. From Scandinavia to France. Britain by far is head and shoulder above all of these rotten things that are happening across Europe. So I'm very proud of being British. Very proud of my country's heritage and history and its tolerant culture. But you know what? I don't want this tolerant culture and this standard that we have to be used to deprive me of my fair share of the culture and the standard that I should naturally have. I'm an equal citizen. Treat me like an equal human being. That's what European in the continent of Europe, Muslim should be be treated like that. So my struggle, my lectures, my travel, my writing when I'm traveling across Europe is exactly that. I tell France, stop being racist. Wake up. Really, your Algerian Moroccans are keeping your country's
1: economy going. They will collapse if they left. So what do you think are the pertinent issues facing the British Muslim community? Today's Muslim communities have got internal and
0: external uh, problems. So internally, our disunity, our ignorance, our tribalism, our closed mosque, our lack of modernity, our lack of openness, these are internal problems. External problems are political. There is a vested interest on the part of some people who are only interested in vilifying Islam. That's the problem. The media's obsession with negative stereotyping of Muslims, reporting stories with the prisms of um, terrorism all the time. This is a problem. We need to challenge this. And the sooner we challenge it, the sooner we will breathe life into Europe, which should
1: be full of harmony and peace, should be full of multicultural celebrations. So what sort of attitude do you think Muslims should be having, I guess, in the UK? Because I guess there's a real sense that Muslims feel quite negative or, or, and or, are on the back foot. Um, is that the stance that they need to take, become yeah. insular and protect Muslims... themselves? Or do you think there should be a different approach? Muslims should become very proactive,
0: should become engaging. Muslims should be involved in in civil society institutions from government bodies, to lobby groups, to media, to becoming MPs, to becoming CEOs of companies, to becoming bankers, investors, merchants, all sorts. Muslims should be in every sector of our country. They should be in the police force, they should be in the army, they should be everywhere. Because the more integration we have within the mainstream and its infrastructure, the more we will be accepted as local see, I always say, and this is my mantra, always when I'm reminding people, Britain is your home. Accept it. Behave as though you are at home. Do everything possible to demonstrate to the world, this is my home. Accept British people as your people. Respect them, honour them and care for them. That's when they're your people. And do everything possible for the well-being of the country in which you live. You can't ride a boat and then dig a hole in it. You'll sink. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Common sense. Saying of the Prophet. ﷺ, our attitude should be this is our home, this is our people, this is our country, and we're going to do everything possible for everyone's well-being. Prophet ﷺ said, Khairun Nas man farun nas, the best of man is the one who is most beneficial to man. In the generic sense of the word, we should all be productive and beneficial.
1: So you're a relationship counsellor and also you set up the Barefoot Institute, um, which focuses on relationships and marriage and uh, interpersonal relationships as well. Um, What do you think are the key ingredients to a happy and successful marriage?
0: Happy and successful marriage requires... And also an
1: enduring marriage. Happy
0: and successful marriage requires us to follow the Qur'anic paradigm. Allah says the purpose of marriage is to create a safe space. A safe space where man and woman can grow, individually and collectively. They're not overwhelming one another, they're not suffocating the other, they're not strangling the other, they're not being extra needy, but they're interdependent. A space which is safe for them, emotionally, spiritually and physically. They can grow. They can be who they want to be. A space... From where they can build a family A a future, a vision So for a successful marriage The first thing is to create a safe space And for a safe space You need a clear vision and understanding You need a couple to talk together Communicate well So first is safe space Secondly, once you've created the safe space Allah says The most important part of a Muslim marriage An Islamic marriage is It's based on two sides of one coin Love and mercy. If you combine the two in a safe space, you've got a marriage that will succeed. And finally, icing on the cake is he then says, There are signs for those who reflect. Constant evaluation, constant assessment of success and failure and change is essential to keeping a marriage exciting in a life people say i'm bored of marriage oh brother please help me i'm st- i can't find my marriage exciting anymore because you're stale brother because you've you've not evaluated have you asked your wife how are you doing can we change have you asked your husband can we change things so when you're stale you don't succeed so i've just said three principles safe space
1: one coin called love and mercy and the third is reflection and I guess, does that link into perhaps one thing that I've noticed over the last few years is, you know, very good practicing brothers and sisters, you know, and seem seem very happy in a marriage and then for whatever reason you find out, you know, they've separated or they're divorced many years later and they're both good individuals and they've, you know, they, they've made things work for a long time. Do you think there's a pattern there that has emerged in terms of why these marriages aren't working or is it? Because it's quite a worrying phenomenon, often you think you know if things are difficult early on, maybe it's a mismatch, but perhaps two people that are linked in together and seem to have connected for many years, and then things fall apart. There are many reasons why people have divorced. People can grow
0: out of one another because they've never what we call Realigned themselves. They've never sat down to say there is in marriage a seven year itch every few years you need know, to sit down and reevaluate your marriage re Formulate a contract in fact if we were to use the cliché term do your vows again of course we don't have a vow according to Islam but we have a contract and I also think most people in our 21st century world have become too egotistical, too selfish it's I, I and I it's me and mine nobody else matters that selfish streak is destroying marriages did you know, according to modern psychology, and you should know, people who use I, me, and mine live shorter life and more miserable life. And people who use ours, us, live longer and happier life. Studies after studies have shown that selfishness is destructive and selflessness is amazing. The biggest reason why marriages fail is selfishness. Unwilling to compromise, unwilling to meet halfway, unwilling to be flexible, unwilling to negotiate, unwilling to be in any other way, and they often say, It's my way or the highway. When you're like that, you will not survive in any marriage.
1: What would you say to those um, couples or even individuals that are maybe reluctant to seek external help? You know, I guess, whether to see, to see a counselor or somebody else. Um, often I think is the case one, one person in the relationship may will be willing but the other one hesitant or reluctant or Muslim thinking well, we don't do all that sort of counselling stuff what would you say to them?
0: Well they should have the same attitude as they have with their physical health if you have a festering wound on your leg were well, you just going to ignore it? No you're going to go to the doctors if the doctor can, can't sort it out you'll be referred to a hospital if you are willing to take Every step to cure your physical illness. Why do you not invest in curing your emotional illnesses? If you are suffering in a marriage, why suffer silently? Go to somebody who is an expert. Don't complicate it by getting your families involved. Because families getting involved, it makes it worse. Because those families only should be involved if they are objective, if they can guarantee confidentiality and privacy, and if they can remain impartial which, of course, doesn't happen. So get a third party, professional involved. Invest in your marriage. Invest in your emotional relationship. If you're suffering, get professional help. Simple. So many marriages could be saved.
1: And you run barefoot along with um, your wife, Henna, sister Henna, who's a Hungarian convert sister. Um, so talking about diversity, <laughs> what, you're, what you've managed um, in your own life, Um, but you've also written about and talked publicly about um, when your father tried to arrange a forced marriage for you when you were very young Yes. Could, could you tell us about that my father tried to get me married to somebody of his own choice
0: without my consent without my permission without anything and I wasn't having it so what happened was a long battle between my father and I emotional battle unfortunately destroyed our relationship permanently and i didn't marry the lady that my father wanted but i destroyed the culture of forced marriage from my entire nation or my entire family nobody would ever get forced into a marriage ever again because i believe forced marriage is wrong professor said this um i'm very grateful to allah that i didn't get married like that because i know i would have been destroyed
1: so masro tell us about the next item you'll take with you on the desert island
0: the next item I have chosen would be a quote. A quote from a great personality, Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, Great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, small minds discuss people. I love this quote. And I can see this happening every day. In our world. People who have got very small minds. They always personalize a conversation. They discuss other people. Gossip. Backbite. slander. They live on juicy gossip of other people. Talk about people. That's all they do. That's why some of those trashy tabloid newspapers. Focus on people's private affairs. People's private life. And they sell well. Unfortunately, it's an indication that in the world there are too many small-minded people. People who have got average minds, they discuss events. They talk about what happened at that event they went to, they attended, they heard of. They talk about global events, local events. They relish the fact that they have attended one. They relish the fact that they have brought back with them memories and lessons. That's average mind. But if you truly want to have a great mind, then you have to discuss ideas. You know, mind is an idea factory. If your mind ceases to produce ideas, then you might as well not be alive. So anyone who forgets ideas has actually lost their mind. That's why great minds discuss ideas. You discuss about philosophy, you discuss about theology, you discuss about characteristics, you talk about the major methods and modes of transformation of society. You talk about how we're going to become better people. How we're going to create equality in the world. You discuss, you go and delve deeper into ideas that would create justice in the world. That would free people from tyranny and oppression and injustice. That is great. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people. My all-time favorite quote
1: from Eleanor Roosevelt. So, Mr. whenever I see you, you're full of energy and enthusiasm. How do you recharge your batteries and keep energized? That's a question my wife often asks me. And I, the uh, the only answer I have is that
0: I have a very interesting biological body clock that I think all of us possess, but we hide. Did you know that I don't drink tea or coffee? I've never tasted it in my life. In other words, my body does not have caffeine. Quite unusual for a Bangladeshi, Pakistani, and a China, Pakistanian China. Indian. Of course, of course. But I don't take any caffeine, so I don't have what you call energy bursts followed by energy drops. I have one static level of energy from the moment my eye opens, eyes open, and until I go to sleep. I will never—you will never see me completely dead and exhausted unless I've done something strenuous. So this level of energy is consistent with my diet. And I attribute this to diet. All of us could do the same. Secondly, it's also mental attitude. If you have a positive mental atu- attitude about everything, I think you'll always be excited. Thirdly, if you have passion, and if you do everything because things that you do, you do them passionately, you will want to do them. If somebody drags you to do them, you are kicking and screaming, is not going to happen. And I think most importantly, Allah is very, very kind and very merciful to me. He has given me perhaps one amongst many um, a gift that I don't get disheartened. I don't give up. That's why my favorite verse of the Quran is "Wala tahinu, wala ta'zanu, wa al in Don't despair. Don't give up, and never be sad. Because Allah will elevate you if you truly believe in Him. And I truly believe in Allah in every way possible. And I don't feel sad. Of course, there is a natural tendency of every human being to feel sad. But I don't wallow in it. I move on. I feel happy about life, generally. Of course, there are ups and downs. But you don't live in that miserable cycle, that quagmire, where you feel sorry for your own self and you go down and down and down. Nobody's bothered. You're the only one who's suffering. But I believe that's a mental
1: attitude that you can change. And alhamdulillah, I have a positive one.
0: It doesn't impact.
1: So how do you relax and what makes you laugh? Oh,
0: I have, uh, like everybody else. I like a good uh, conversation with my family. I like a good uh, meal. I like to go out. I like cycling a lot. I like swimming. I like skiing. I like um, Hang gliding I like scuba diving, I like snorkelling, really wacky sports I like because I'm not good at any other, anything else. Uh, but these are not my relaxation, these are things that I do when I have the time. But most, most relaxing moment is when I'm sitting down and writing, or reflecting, or reading the Quran. Um, I don't think I can say to you, I sat down and I did nothing. I just can't think of a moment in my time in the day when I'm awake
1: that I'm sitting down doing nothing and that's me relaxing Who were your role models growing up and what about now?
0: My role models obviously vary and they change with time and place In the modern world there are a number of role models I've seen and I've had and I've had influences from Prophet Muhammad not a cliched statement but it is by far the most influential role model in my life. I, have, I read him, I read him, I write him about him. I thoroughly research about everything that he did. So he is most influential and the biggest role model for me. In the contemporary world or amongst my um, peers, Nelson Mandela would be a very powerful role model. Some aspects of Mahatma Gandhi's life and work has influenced me in many ways. Uh, Abraham Lincoln and his struggle some of the struggles of Dr. Martin Luther King Um, so it varies I do like Alia Bogovic, who struggled against uh, the Serbian domination and Russian or USSR's um, oppression so it depends at what time in my life and where I am for what role model to shape my thinking and influence me or even inspire me.
1: So we're going to cast you away on this desert island. How do you think you'll cope with the solitude and the loneliness? Will that be something easy for you or do you think you'll find it hard? I won't find it difficult. I'll just need a pen and paper. If you give me a pen and paper
0: or my laptop just to type, I'll be fine. I'll probably write my books. So solitude doesn't frighten me. In fact, it's something that I probably would like to do one day in my life before I die. Be a castaway somewhere. All on my own. With just a laptop, sufficient battery or even maybe a solar panel to just charge it up. And I don't need anything else. I'm quite a simple person. I don't. I just need some fresh water and some basic food. I'm very happy with fish. So in a castaway island, I'll eat fish. I'll have fresh water if, if it's possible. And I'll type.
1: So Masrur, what book would you take with you on this desert island?
0: What book would I take with me on a desert island holiday or desert island castaway? I have no idea, to be honest with you. I've thought long and hard. I don't think I'll be content with one book because I like reading loads and loads of books of different kinds and variety. But the type of books that I like are mainly history books. I love reading about history. I like talking about discussing, analysing history from a political perspective. So any book on politics and history combined would fascinate me. A recent book I read called Freedom at Midnight was about India in its last legs, just before British India in its last leg, just before it was granted independence and the partition. It was a fascinating book. The writer was able to bring to the fore some of the inner discussions, the last-minute intimate conversations between the British Empire and the local interest groups in India, both of the Muslim and Hindu background. I was fascinated. One of the things that struck me in that book was how India was divided. It was arbitrarily partitioned by an English gentleman Who had never been to India before. And he was pulled up and taken out from England all the way to India. Given a map and a pencil and a ruler to curve up India. Giving parts to Muslims and parts to Hindus. It was most brutal culling in my view. It was the most brutal division ever. People were pitching against one another, fighting bloodbath, millions of people died, lost their homes, moved around. It was one of the most tragic incidents. I wish it never happened. I wish Britain never colonized India in the first place. So that's a book that I would take with me again and again and again to read and reread. You know, the sad thing is, India used to be the richest country in the world. By the time Britain left India, it became a bottomless basket, a terribly desperate place. And it hasn't recovered India, Pakistan or Bangladesh. So the colonial legacy lives on. Any books on colonial history, any books on the slave history, the slavery of black people, gets me all excited agitated, frustrated, passionate and driven to see the world become better. So give me a history book with politics anytime. I'll probably be hiding behind those pages and not talking to anyone. I suppose that suits me pretty well if I'm on my own on Desert Island. So any book on history and politics.
1: And what luxury item would you take with you? The
0: luxury item I would take with me is a hammock. Does that sound funny? Well, you know, I love a hammock. I could tie my hammock between two palm trees and swing gently, enjoying the breeze and the shade of the palm trees while I listened to the waves falling on the shore repeatedly. I could hear the birds fluttering in the wind, seagulls squeaking. I could hear in the distance the waves hitting the rocks. And I probably will just lie there, read, sleep, wake up, read, sleep, wake up. That's all I probably would do. I love an idea of a hammock. An expensive, strong Hammock made of good fabric. I don't like synthetic fabric too. I like natural fabric. So it'll have to be made of cotton. Pure cotton. Has to be colourful too. I know, it sounds strange, doesn't it? And I could use my hammock also as a prayer mat. And I can use my hammock to cover myself, to protect me from the wind. I could even sleep in it. It could be my bed, my chair, my sofa, my city. A place for me to reflect and read and write and watch the clouds go by. The sun come up and go down, the moon rise and set, and the stars twinkle in the distant sky. I can feel I'm on a hammock right now that would be my luxury item a hammock that's for sure
1: so Imam Ajmu thank you very much for sharing your Desert Island Gems with us thank and you very much we wish you all the best and remember us in your duas. you too inshallah thank you As-salamu alaykum. Alaykum. thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems Let us know what you think of the show on the Radio Ramadan Facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on mcmuslim.tv.
0: For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.